This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword, and it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. It's Friday, which means we've made it to the end of another week. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is a program, as you know, dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering Bible questions, life questions, whatever's on your heart or mind. All we need you to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR, numerically at 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen. Everything else will be hands-free, and we'll get you connected directly to our studio producer. I mean, Number one more time is 340-9585. I am praying everybody has a great weekend in church tonight. I'm going to be teaching uh, on uh, the the spiritual weapons of warfare uh, tonight. And we're talking about the breastplate of righteousness and then ready feet. That's important. Ready feet. I, I have a saying, get our faith to our feet means that we're going to be moving. We're going to be serving the Lord. We're going to be sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. When you're doing that, the devil is nowhere to be around. He's going to look for greener pastures, easier pickings. So tonight, uh, just those two weapons in our Ephesians chapter 6 Bible study. And then on Sunday... Everybody get to church. Now, this is a big weekend for um, all of us. We've been out of church, a lot of us, for for a year. Uh, Last year, Palm Sunday and Easter was basically taken from us. Uh, Not so this year. This year, we've got the freedom uh, legally to go to church, to to, uh, be with other believers. And Sunday is Palm Sunday. It's the first day of what is referred to by theologians as Jesus' Passion Week. And when we remember that his passion is for us, not for himself, his passion is for us, then this week is one of the more important weeks for us to really truly dig into and understand in his entire life. This was the week that he said goodbye to his disciples as they would look at him and they were terrified. What are we going to do now? What's going to happen to us? Think about Mary Magdalene for a couple of moments. A woman who had seven demons. And she would naturally wonder, are they going to come back? My life was so filled with pain before. 
What's going to happen now? They, they never experienced anything like this. And suddenly Jesus says, I'm going away. Now, there's a lot that he promised them that they didn't hear. I'm convinced that they stopped listening after I'm going away. But he said, look, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. It's good for you that I go. If I go, I'll send another me in a different form, but I'll send another me, the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of Truth, and he will lead us into all truth. He'd already told them that he was going to rise from the dead, but they didn't hear that either. It's just one of those weeks. If you've ever doubted Jesus loves you, if you've ever doubted even for a moment that he's good, just open your Bible. And for the next week, and I'll start on Monday, going through the daily activities of Jesus every day of his Passion Week. Because he was thinking about you. And he was thinking about me. I'm going to do something in our study. I haven't done it before. And you know, it's the same story we tell every year. I used to really fret about that. You know, what can I come up with that's new? There's nothing new. So I stopped worrying about coming up with something new. Uh, The Lord was just telling me, just tell the story. So I'm going to tell the story, but I'm going to do something a little different this year in that I'm going to bring it up into the time that we live in. What if it was instead of April 6, 32 A.D.? That's the widely accepted date of the triumphal entry, accepted according to the scholarship of Sir Robert Anderson. What if it was April 6, 2021? You know, the truth is, I think we would react in much the same way as the crowd did. On the day that they knew it was going to appear. So Palm Sunday is a very, very special time for us. Hope you get in church. Wherever it is that you go to church, go to church. Let the Lord speak to your heart. And let Jesus sort of envelop you in his love and in his passion, because it's all for you. Of course, next week, Friday is going to be Good Friday, uh, and then Sunday, Easter Sunday, and and uh, I'm sure most of us will be in church on those days as well. It is a wonderful opportunity to remember exactly what he did. And then the reason that we know what he did was true. You know, we Christians are either arrogant We claim that we're the only right way. Jesus said that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. But you see, it's not arrogant if it's true, and it's true because Easter Sunday, when they went to look for a dead body, he was alive. I love when Mary Magdalene and a couple of the other ladies, including another Mary, not Mary, the mother of Jesus, When she went to the tomb, the angel met her. And he said, why are you looking for the living among the dead? One of my favorite lines. He's not here. He is risen. Just as he said. The tomb was empty. We celebrate that a week from this coming Sunday. 
Okay, let me get to some questions that have been sent in, and then we will sort of move forward. This first one is from Kirby from our mobile app. Um, Pastor Ron, does Hebrews 6, 4 address once saved, always saved? And does the passage, along with 1 John 2, 19, complement or support each other's point? Um, Kirby, a couple of things. Uh, Hebrews 6, uh, every time I get a question about Hebrews 6, I realize how powerful the enemy is. You know, we read that verse or or these three verses that you've addressed, uh, and we read them out of context with the rest of the book. And we come to the conclusion immediately that, well, boy, if you blow it, you're done. There's no coming back. Let me read the passage, and then we'll 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 get to it. Uh, it says, "It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away." There's the key to be brought back to repentance. It is impossible for them to be brought back to repentance. What he's saying. Through their loss, they're crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Now, when people read that and the enemy is right there saying, see, you blew it, you can't come back, that's the enemy. That's contrary to everything else the Bible teaches us. So this isn't a verse that suggests that we can lose our salvation or that we can blow it so badly that there's no road back. Not at all. This is a verse taken in context. Paul is writing to, and I believe the author is Paul, He's writing to Jewish converts to Christianity who throughout the course of the history of that group of believers, there's probably 25 or 30 years worth of history, and they've been facing a lot of persecution early in their conversion. They accepted the confiscation of their property with joy, almost like it was an honor to suffer for Jesus. We learn that from Hebrews chapter 10. But now years have passed and frankly just like us nearly 2,000 years later we get tired of fighting the fight and so there were a lot of these Jewish converts to Christ who realized that they could escape persecution if they would only return to Judaism their families would accept them their friends, the, the social and the economic the business communities would welcome them back And Paul is basically saying in Hebrews chapter 6, so where else are you going to go? The sacrificial system didn't work for you? That's how you found Jesus in the first place? You're going to go back to religious ceremonies and festivals and feasts? When you know in your heart of hearts that Jesus alone forgives sins, where are you going to go? So that's what he's saying. And what he's trying to do is encourage him. You know, nobody reads fast verse 6. Paul will later in just a couple of verses say, I have better things in mind for you or, or in store for you. My hope is that, that you're going to overcome this. And so all we need to do is understand they, they were being persecuted. They were, some of them, taking the easy way out returning to Judaism because it would make life, at least on the surface, easier. But that's not at all what was going to be true. So that's all Hebrews 6 is. Hebrews, if you read it, and I've read it, I don't know, a hundred times. If you read it, you'll be convinced of two things, and I believe this with my heart. One is that Paul is the author. You'll understand his heart. You can hear his heart. 
The second thing you'll understand is that Hebrews is uh, perhaps of all of the epistles, the book that holds the most uh, security for the believer of all of them, of all of the epistles. So, um, Kirby, it doesn't mean that you can't repent and come back to Jesus. Again, that would be contrary to 1 John 1, 9 and everything else. Now, I realize this question is engendered a lot by people. Uh, we see them accept Jesus Christ, and for a while they look like they're doing fine, and then they sort of fade away, and, and we wonder, did they lose their salvation? Well, 1 John 2, 19, the other verse that you mentioned, explains that. John writes, and John, when he wrote this, was thinking of Judas. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. So we see these people that make a profession of faith. They get really excited. The parable of the sower has the same principle. But then they don't continue. The truth is they never really gave their heart to Jesus. They, they made a profession of faith, but their profession was absent the heart and soul of the truth of that profession. So, Kirby, that's what is going on with that. Thank you very, very much. I know people don't like it when I say, well, you know, they, if they go out and they stay out, they weren't saved. Well, they were saved. I saw them. Who are you to judge? I'm just reading what John wrote. Nobody accuses John of being judgmental. John's just giving the facts. When people say they're part of us, but they leave us, it's because they never really were part of us. And we all know people that made professions of faith and it became evident very early on in their walk that they didn't uh, really mean it. They weren't committed to it. Okay, here is a question from Andrea or Andrea, I don't know which. Uh, what would you say to a woman who's pastoring a church? And then in parentheses, she writes, I know you don't believe women can be pastors. And what would you say to people going to a church with a woman pastor? Um, uh, Andrea or Andrea, I wouldn't, I, I don't have to guess what I would say because I've had this conversation before um, and the same conversation with people who go to a church where a woman's a pastor. I tell them all the same thing, that they're settling for less than God's best. I, I'm not doubting the salvation of women who are pastoring churches currently or, or even a woman who wants to be a pastor. Uh, I'm sure they're saved. Their doctrine is messed up. Uh, the fact that they want to be a pastor indicates they don't really understand the word of God, nor the heart of God, nor do they understand who's in charge. And so what I would tell her is that she personally is settling for less than God's best for her life. Not only that, but she's depriving, of the, pe depriving the people who are listening to her, sitting under her teaching. She's depriving them of the best that God has for their lives. It's that simple. So uh, to somebody who's going to a church with a woman pastor, I would I just want to know, why, why did you do that? Well, she's anointed or she's such a good preacher. This doesn't have anything to do with ability. This doesn't have anything to do with an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. This is all about who's in charge. Jesus has said that the church is his and we are servants of his. That means we've got to do what he says. And he's the one who said to us, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over the men in church, period. And there's no way to exegete that and, and find a loophole. That's just the way it is. One other comment here, uh, Andrea. Um, 
you said in parentheses, I know you don't believe a woman could be pastors. If the Bible said women could be pastors, I'd be more than happy. I have women in my church who are capable. Uh, some of them are probably more capable than I am, for sure. More gifted, for sure. Um, but, but it's not me. I don't make the rules. Jesus makes the rules because the church is his. I'm his. Everybody who comes and calls himself a Christian belongs to him. And we've got to do what he says, period. And a woman who says, I'm called to be a pastor. I know I'm, I'm anointed to be a pastor. Uh, that is a woman who is influenced far more by the culture that we live in as opposed to being influenced by the Word of God. It really is that straightforward. And uh, I, I get a lot of heat over this. But the truth is, there's no way using the Bible to justify a woman being a pastor. I one time had a woman tell me, Andrea, that that uh, she she says, well, I believe that if God could trust a woman to, to, to be the mother of his son, then he can certainly trust a woman to be the pastor. And, and you see, that's the kind of nonsensical argument you get when you simply say, this is what the Bible says. I, I couldn't ever carry the son of God. I can't be a mother. I don't lust over being a mother. I don't want that. One. God, why did you let me be a mother? And the same thing is true for women who want to be pastors. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Jacob says, does divorce always eliminate a man from church leadership or are there mitigating circumstances like being a victim? Um, Jacob, divorce doesn't always, uh, the, the word always is almost never appropriate. Um, uh, divorce doesn't always disqualify somebody. If, if a man in leadership, um, church leadership, or a man who has a calling to be a pastor uh, in a church, uh, if he divorces his wife and he does so without biblical grounds, then yes, it would disqualify him from being a pastor or being a leader in the church. It's that simple. We are expected too much is given, much more is required, Jesus said. So we're the ones who are supposed to be setting the example for other people to follow. Uh, however, let's just say, and I'll make this personal just so that nobody thinks I'm talking about a situation I know anything about because I don't. But let's say Paula just decided up and leave me. I mean, she got a better offer or um, she just got tired or got tired of me. And she just says, I'm out of here. Uh, if that was the case, I would have done nothing to cause the divorce. And I would be free to continue in my role as a pastor or to go somewhere else and seek the, the, the position of a pastor as well. So, Jacob, I hope that makes sense to you. Excuse me, I had to cough. My producer had to step out for a moment. Um, so, Jacob, I hope that answers your question. Here is a question from Natalie. Uh, Pastor, do you believe Esther should be in the Bible? There's no mention of God in it, and it seems as though the story has no relevance in our time. Um, Natalie, it, it obviously believes in, it belongs in the Bible. It's been a part of the Jewish canon of Scripture for 
centuries. So, yes, it obviously uh, belongs in our Bible. Um, and, and the fact that there's no mention of God doesn't, we can't lose sight of the fact that, that God is on every page. God working behind the scenes, the sovereignty of God is important. You know, in the book of Esther, it's the closest in the history of the Jewish people. It's the closest they ever came to being completely being completely wiped out. God was the one who was intervening all the way. God is the one who raised up Esther for such a time as this. God is the one who put uh, Mordecai, Mordecai, I like to say, in 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 the position of influence. Uh, God is the one who caused the evil Haman to, to stumble and fall into his own trap. God is always at work throughout the book. So the fact that there's no mention of God in it doesn't change the fact that God is working behind the scenes. Uh, his sovereign power is seeing his plan for his people and his ability to save, to preserve his people is everywhere throughout the book. So it's very important. Now, as to whether or not it has relevance in our time, certainly we don't have arranged marriages and we don't have beauty pageants for kings uh, to select a queen. Uh, there is so much relevance, taking risks standing up to authority, the risks Esther took. You know, she was drop-dead beautiful. The Bible is very clear about that. But she was also wonderfully brave. You talk about faith. She was the one. And, and she had people to help her. Um, Mordecai is a, a picture of the Holy Spirit um, in the background, encouraging, exhorting her to step out. And so the fact that she had so much courage, she had so much faith, when it appeared there was no reason for that faith. Um, what an example it is for us, those of us who live in a time when the world that we live in is completely turning away from from uh, uh, even a belief in God, literally and physically opposing God. Um, we need to be as brave as Esther was. And we need to take a stand for what's right, for who is right, publicly, in our workplace, in our schools, in our communities, in our local governments. We need to take a stand for what's right. And Esther did, and as a result, the Jewish race was saved. Now, the reason that's so important, if Haman would have been successful in his evil plan, make no mistake, Haman was a demon-possessed, Satan-possessed man. If he would have been successful then there would have been no Jesus who ever could have come into this world to save. So Esther's a story of hope. It's a story of courage and bravery. And by the way, Natalie, um, you can go to our website, calvarysa.com, and uh, our ladies are currently studying Esther in their Monday night Bible studies. Uh, Jocelyn Makasadia just did the, the, the recent study, but I think they're just getting started in it good, and uh, it wouldn't take much to catch up on it and listen to the ladies uh, do the Bible studies in the, in the book of Esther. Uh, you will be blessed by it. So, yeah, it, it it should be, it is in our Bible, it should be in our Bible, and God is everywhere in it, and it has enormous practical value 
for the time that we live in in the 21st century? Good question. I'll do that one. I don't have time for it before we end up this one. Okay. Um, here's one from Eddie. Do you think that the really old ages of the Genesis patriarchs are real or literal? How could people live so long? Uh, Eddie, not only do I believe that the old ages are literal, um, uh, I believe that the Holy Spirit goes out of his way to say so as clearly as possible. I'll give you just one example. Methuselah was the oldest man who ever lived. And Methuselah was a man who uh, his birth announced that God was going to judge the world. And the fact that that, that man was the oldest man that ever lived is a picture of God's patience. So it it is literal. He really did live 969 years and all of the others that lived uh, the ages that the Bible declares, they're absolutely true. Now, how could they live so long? It's simple. Um, the fall had happened. The, 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 the world was made perfect. Um, it took some time for the decay from sin to start taking effect. And it wasn't until after the flood when the lives of humans were shortened a great deal. That's when they, they'd start to live. And even then we find 180 years old, 150 years old. We find a lot of people living a very, very long time. It just took time for death. Remember, God created mankind to live forever. And we blew it. But yes, those old ages are absolutely literal and essential to our faith in Jesus Christ. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in the week, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is the word to stand up for life. We'll be back in two minutes. back to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the final 30 minutes of our week the phones are quiet 340-9585 for your live calls and questions here's a question from our email inbox from ariana Hi, Pastor Ron. I spoke with someone about women not being able to lead in the church, and they told me not to take the Bible literally because the last sentence talks about women being saved in childbearing, but we know that everyone is saved by faith. So can you please explain what that last verse means in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15? Let me read the verse. It's very simple uh, and confusing. It says, but women will be saved through childbearing, assuming they continue to live in faith, love, holiness, and modesty. Uh, Ariana, when, you, when, when you're talking to somebody who throws that out there, you never try to find out what the clear passage of Scripture. Now, in, in 1 Timothy 2, verse 12, Paul writes, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man in church. Now, that's pretty straightforward. It needs no definition. It's just that somebody who doesn't want to obey God, they're going to say, well, well, what about this verse? Or what about this other verse? Just take the clear, the verses with, with clear, specific meaning. Understand them for what they are, and then sort of do some digging to find the, the verses that aren't. Now, one thing that we know is true, and this is where the Bible interprets itself, 
We know that women aren't saved because they have a child. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us very clearly that we are saved by grace through faith and that the faith, not of ourselves, it is the gift of God. That's how we're saved. Romans 10, if we confess with our mouth and believe in our hearts, that's not the words, it's, it's a heart that's converted, then we will be saved. So that's how people are saved. So we can immediately, if you're, if you're an honest scholar, if you really want to know the answers, you can immediately disqualify women being saved just because they have babies. That's not what's being said. In the context of the passage, now, honestly, Ariana, this is a verse that I wish Paul had never said. You know, when we get to heaven, and it's not going to be like this because we're going to know everything the way Jesus knows everything when we get there. But uh, in, in the flesh, from, from the perspective of earth, uh, I'd like to go to Paul and say, why did you write this? There's a couple of things you wrote that I'm going to ask him, or I'd like to ask him the same thing. And we, what do you mean? The best we can do with this is understand the context of the passage. And the context of the passage says, here's what women can't do. This is order in the church. This is the whole thing. This is the way churches run. Jesus is the head of the church. I do not permit a woman to teach her authority over a man. And then when he gets to the end, I think what he's saying there, and this is only a guess, and you can find a hundred different interpretations of this, but I believe that what God is saying is the woman is saved by virtue, and it's not saved in terms of salvation, but saved in life. Remember, childbearing uh, was, was difficult as a result of the curse. It was never going to be that way. And and when when the pain starts, I've I've known women who felt like they were going to die during childbearing, and of course, a lot of women have died. So, Paul is saying for the woman to thrive, to prosper in the church and out of the church, to accept the roles that God has given them, without questioning, and that's why he says, assuming they continue to live in faith, love, holiness, and modesty. You can't live in faith. You're not living in love. You're certainly not walking holiness, and, and you're not demonstrating modesty. You're being arrogant if you think that you ought to be able to do something that God told you not to do. So here's what he's saying. You can't be a pastor in the church, but accept the role that God has given you. Now, let me also say this in, in connection with the other question we just had about this. Um women can still teach. God gives women the gift of teaching just like he gives men the gift of teaching. The only thing he does is he restricts the audience. Women can teach women. Uh, older women, Titus chapter 2, teaching the younger women how, how to be mature, godly women. Um, w- women do counseling. That's really the gift of teaching. So there's lots of outlets for women to use the gift of teaching, Paul is simply saying he's the one who establishes the church. He's the one who made, laid down the ground rules in the first century. He's simply establishing that in the church there's going to be order and the church leaders will be men. I want to emphasize, Ariana, that doesn't mean that men are smarter or more spiritual or more gifted. God is simply saying, this is the way it is, and it's because of the curse. It's not the way God intended things to be. It's because of the curse. 
So that's the my best guess on First Timothy chapter two, verse fifteen. But the person that you spoke with is not being honest. They have no interest in being honest. And typically those are the conversations that you should end by saying, you know, when you really want to ask an honest question, then come back and we'll talk. So I hope that makes sense, Ariana. Thank you for defending our faith and the word of God. Here is a question from Anonymous. Um, My wife believes in Jesus, but won't pray with me, nor will she read her Bible. She seems cool at best concerning the things of God. What can I do to help? Uh, Anonymous, the best thing you can do to help is ask her to sit down with you while you read, and then read to her while you're reading with her. Um, do the same thing with prayer. Uh, pray with her. In other words, walk the walk. You show her what a godly man is like in the home. It's very attractive. And um, and then the Holy Spirit will win her heart. It's that simple. It won't be easy. It doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be quick. But um, if she sees a, 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 an on-fire husband, somebody who's just oozing the love of God, then she won't be able to stay cool to the things of God. So invest in her. If she refuses to um, sit down and read with you, you let her know that every day, every night, whatever works for you, I'm going to be right here with my Bible open, and I love you, you're my wife, and I, I'm asking you as a personal favor to me to be there. If you're not there, I'm still going to be there. And you do, you be so consistent that she'll know when to, um, when you're going to be doing, spending your time with the Lord. And then you can be in a position where she can watch and your witness can be used by the Holy Spirit to win her heart to Jesus. Those are always a tough one. Here's a called in. It looks like Byron, not Foron. I heard you talking about birds in dreams yesterday. It reminded me of several years ago when ministers were being asked about dreams with bears. I had a bear dream back when that was happening, and I was victorious in that dream. Uh, Ministers in that time realized that the bears represented Russia. Could something like that be happening again? Um, No, I don't think that's the case at all. Jesus is the one who established that that birds and the parables were evil. There's nothing about bears. Um, You know, the the whole end times thing, Russia is is, um, um, represented by a bear. In fact, um, uh, Russia isn't necessarily represented by a bear. That's just bad exegesis. In fact, it's not exegesis at all. It's eisegesis. And um, Ron, those are, are, are the kind of dreams um, they're just dreams. I, I've had dreams about bears. Uh, I watch nature shows, survival shows, uh, and I've had dreams about bears and snakes and everything else. Um, um, I, I don't think that's at all what's happening. Dreams, uh, visions, uh, Jesus established in the parables that when we're, we're in the word, birds represent evil always in the parables. Always. There is no exception. And so um, 
when asked yesterday about the dream with birds in it, um, if it was from God, then the birds would have represented evil. But God is the one, Jesus himself is the one who, who, um, who established that connection. So Russia isn't our concern. Here is a question from Chet. He says, my wife doesn't believe and she doesn't want me sharing Jesus with her kids because she doesn't want them thinking that she is going to hell. Do you have any advice for me, Chet? Uh, my heart breaks for you. Uh, I, I realize how painful it is to be in an unequally yoked marriage. Um, I deal with so much pain. But here's a place for you to take a stand for Jesus. Uh, they're your children. And you tell her that you are going to share Jesus with your kids and everybody else's kids and everybody else that you meet as well, because it's the truth. If she doesn't see that it's important enough for you to take a stand with her, if she can talk you out of sharing with your kids, then um, then she knows that your, your Jesus doesn't really mean all that much to you. If her concern is that her kids, your kids, are going to think that she's going to hell, then just tell her that she's got the opportunity to change all that. All she has to do is believe in Jesus, and there's no possibility. But tell her, hey, this isn't personal. Everybody who rejects Jesus Christ is going to spend eternity in hell. And I will not lie to our children. I will not lie to you. So challenge her to find out what's true. But to withhold the truth from your children is one of the cruelest things that you can do. As a dad, your responsibility is to represent Jesus. Whether your wife is in it with you or not is beside the point. Your job is to be a godly husband and a godly father. And you don't need her permission to do those things. Will it cause some friction? It might. But remember, Jesus said he came to divide families. Again, that's not the reason he came. He came to save. But when he came, the result would be that families would be divided. And Chet, yours is one of those families. So you just tell her, I'm going to be sharing Jesus with everybody, not just our kids, but with everybody. And if that's not okay with you, tough. Say it lovingly and respectfully, but at the same time, say it with conviction that I'm going to do what I'm told to do. I pray that you'll be active in sharing your faith so that you'll have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. Paul wrote that to Philemon. So it's really important. Chet, on this specific topic, uh, some years ago, and I lose track of how many years ago, but but Paul and I were in on vacation. Uh, we beach in Southern California at Oceanside, uh, and our son lives... One of our, one of our son lives in in um, uh, Vista, which is just a few miles away. So we get to spend a lot of time with them and the kids. And and that's our son that doesn't believe. And uh, they left the kids um, Saturday night. Uh, they spent the night with me and Paula. And uh, we were a little Bible study. We woke up Sunday and we're going to have church because it's Sunday. That's what you do. Um, when when you're a Christian, you go to church or you have church. We had church. Uh, I gave them the op the option. Okay, you pick the book, and they. Uh, that we had, in fact, we had all five of our grandkids there at the time, and um, so we had a Bible study. They picked the book, and I just did it. And um, um, one of the kids, 
from the unsaved family, said, Grandpa, I don't believe like Yana believes, another one of our kids from the saved family. Does that mean that she's going to heaven and I'm going to the other place? Now, I, I'm not going to lie because I'm afraid of hurting my son and his wife's feelings. So we had a really good opportunity to share with them that everybody is going to go to hell apart from Jesus Christ. So the choices that we make in this life determine where we spend forever. My kids are smart. They got it. And they both, two of the, the older kids, they both decided that they wanted to ask Jesus into their heart. Now, I don't know if it was real. In fact, I doubt that it was for those two. They were very, very young. But you see, they knew the truth and they understood consequence of the choices they made. And so I shared with them. Now, when my son and and, and my daughter-in-law came to pick them up, uh, they were coming out to spend the rest of the day with us. And, um, you know, we don't make it a habit of just cramming Jesus down the, the, their kids' throats. It's their kids, and we honor that. But they know we're going to tell them the truth. Uh, when they asked, they knew that we were going to have a Bible study and do church. And so I told them exactly what I said. And they were not unhappy. They weren't angry. They weren't uh, anything other than, oh, well, that's interesting. And and so the Holy Spirit now can use that on them as well. So, Chet, you stand for Jesus. That's my advice. You stand for him, and he will stand for you. Okay, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Ted. He says, um, right after the rapture, it seems that there will be total chaos. How can I explain that a loving God won't create chaos in the world? Well, Ted, you're right. There will be total chaos, and God will be the source of that chaos. God is the creator of that chaos in the world. What you have to understand is that right after the rapture, God's no longer dealing with the world in grace. God is dealing with the world in judgment and there is no no grace in judgment. When Jesus returns again, it's going to be to destroy his enemies and to take a world that's rebelled against him, judge it, and and uh, and fix it. Um, this is a time that consequences come to bear. And when the rapture of the church happens. Um, the, the the restraining value, the restraining function of of the the church universal here on planet Earth will be taken away, and and the world will be plunged into total evil, total darkness, like the time of the flood. Every inclination of man's heart will be only evil all the time, and so just like what made the flood necessary, it was chaos. And there's going to be chaos, but it's judgment. I once had somebody say, well, I just can't believe that, that if the airline pilot of a, of a plane is a Christian and, and they get raptured and the plane crashes, why would God let all those innocent people die? There's nobody innocent after the rapture. Everybody left on earth is a willful, rebellious sinner. And this is their call to judgment. It's when the chips are cashed. 
And we've got to understand that the same Jesus that is a loving God who died for the sins of the world, we've got to understand that same Jesus is the one in Revelation chapter 19 who comes with his robe covered in blood, the blood of his enemies, who destroys them with the word. So, Ted, it's very important that we explain that adequately. There is only chaos in judgment, and that's when God is done offering forgiveness of sins by grace. Now, still people will be saved during the Great Tribulation, but even they will end up being martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ as they're rebelling against the Antichrist. And those tribulation martyrs are going to be the ones who we see in Revelation under the altar of God, crying, and how long, O God, until you avenge our blood? So there is total chaos. Don't apologize for it. What you can then say to somebody who's asking that question is you can say, you know how to avoid that chaos? Ask Jesus into your heart. Even Jesus said that we should pray that we would be counted worthy to escape the Great Tribulation and its consequences, its judgment. And the only way that we can be counted worthy, we're not worthy, but we can be counted worthy is by faith in Jesus Christ, accepting his righteousness because we have none of our own. So, Ted, that's just the way the world is going to be, and it is going to be a time of judgment, pain, beyond anything that we can ever imagine. Here is a question from Iris. When I hear that name, Iris, it makes me think of an Iris that I love very much who moved away from our church a long time ago. Um, She says, what to you is the most blessed thing about the incarnation of Christ? Um, Iris, there's so much. Um, For me personally, the most blessed thing is that I can walk with him every day. I can talk to him every day. That he became a man so that I could have access to him every single day. I say all the time, just be with Jesus. That, to me, is the most blessed thing. Now, others will have different ideas, but, you know, the fact that Jesus suffered as we suffered to to a far greater degree, um, the, the, the idea that that as a baby, we don't think of this often, but as a beautiful little baby, he was born to die. He he didn't have another purpose on life. He was born to die and every single uh, day he lived was the day being crossed. He he kept saying over and over, my time has not yet come or my hour has not yet come. Well, every day he was closer to that moment when he was, well, we're going to celebrate that on Good Friday when he gave his life, when he gave up his spirit and cried out, it is finished. But for me personally, the thing I am most blessed by about Jesus becoming a human, that's what incarnation means, is that I get to be with God every day, every single day, no matter how I feel, no matter what I've done, no matter whether I'm so close with Jesus that I can feel him or I'm I'm messing up, I can still be with him. Because he became a man to save mankind. We have four minutes left. Here is a question anonymously. Um, Do you have any ideas about how best I can deal with loneliness? I'm single and want to be married but have no prospects. My heart 
bleeds for you, Anonymous. Uh, the, f- the first thing I would tell you to do is um, um, go into our archives uh, just from this past Sunday. Uh, here at Calvary Chapel, I, I did a message for single people. And uh, you can go to calvarysa.com and all of our stuff, of course, is free. Um, but but I think it's a, it's a very uh, significant Bible study uh, dealing primarily, it wasn't exclusively, but but mostly it dealt with, with being single in a world filled with married people and families. Um, I said in that message that uh, if you want to be married, it's a good desire. God has put that desire in your heart. But everything that you're doing now until that man or woman comes into your life, everything that you're doing is preparation by God for that moment. So let him prepare you. Be content. Learn to be content, single. Be married to Jesus. Stop looking at what you Stop what you don't have. Instead of, instead, look at what you do have. You've got a relationship with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Now, I understand the need for human connection, but until you learn to be with Jesus first, until you're content there, He really can't trust you with the man or the woman that He has for you. You would put so much pressure on them that it would doom the relationship. So what I what I strongly advise is, is stop thinking about what you don't have and start rejoicing in what you do have in Christ. And it's so important for you to, to get this because God can't take you to the next place he has for you until you've been faithful in the place you are. These are tests. These are, are trials that we go through. And, and it's perfectly okay. So with Thanksgiving, make your request known to God. You can say every day. You can say it ten times a day. Lord, I, I want to be married. Bring him or bring her to me. But better than that is say, Jesus, I want to be married, so get me ready for the person that you're preparing for me. We are all being prepared to walk in the fullness of God's will for our lives. And, and he's not... He's not giving you the desire to be married to sort of trick you, to pull the rug out from under your feet. He's giving you that desire because it's what he wants for you. And he wants you to delight in the Lord. And then he will give you the desires of your heart. But first, you've got to learn to be content where you are. So Anonymous, last Sunday's Bible study in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, calvaryessay.com, and I'm confident the Holy Spirit will speak to your heart. How am I doing on time? Time to say goodbye. Oh, it's time to say goodbye already almost. Okay, well, I thought I had time for one more question, but I don't. A reminder, tonight I'm going to be teaching on spiritual warfare, the breastplate of righteousness, and the ready feet of the man and the woman to carry the gospel of peace everywhere he or she goes. Hey, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Have a wonderful Palm Sunday in church this week. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Lord willing, I'll be back on Monday at 4 o'clock on AM 630, The Word. We'll see you then.